I think we're panicked because we haven't uh, had opportunities to contemplate stillness. We haven't felt safe enough to sit still. So, I mean, the culture is very well defined about what it is. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Sistema, and this is Sistema for Life. Dr. Porges, thank you so much for making the time coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I was uh, introduced, um, we were introduced by my friend and colleague, uh, Howard Jacobson, who recently interviewed you for his uh, Plant Yourself wellness podcast. And so now I've very much enjoyed listening to you you two talk on that. Well, thanks. And, uh, you know, I'm always enjoying podcasts because they're spontaneous and they get me to think in a novel way. And so I actually enjoy them a lot. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a it's a good medium, right? <laughs> yeah. It's great. So I first heard of your work um, and of polyvagal theory specifically um, via Bessel van der Kolk's um, book, The Body Keeps the Score, some years ago. Um, and for those of you uh, among the listenership who haven't read that, it's an excellent account of the effects of stress and trauma on the body and how you can use body-based interventions, amongst other things, to mitigate them. Um, but I was fascinated in that this that polyvagal theory to me seemed to kind of open up the spectrum of human experience as it relates to stress and it seemed to kind of fit the things that we observe a lot better than the old kind of textbook um, gestalt either you're stressed or you're not right <laughs> kind of thing so how would you describe it in a nutshell um, what polyvagal theory is so the first of all polyvagal theory places the physiology the state of your nervous system in between the stimulus and the response Right. So as our physiological state suddenly becomes important, now that translates to your listeners in terms of their feelings. How do they feel uh, when they go into a situation to, in part determines how they'll react to it. Hmm. And so much of psychology is cerebral. It's up in your head. It's mental structures without an acknowledgement of bodily feelings. Yeah. So if I were to... Uh, summarize what I think has been the greatest impact of polyvagal theory is that it's shifting the uh, personal narrative from one of events to one of feelings. Hmm. So even when we talk about stresses and traumas, we totally uh, forget the bodily feelings and we start focusing on events. Then we start saying, why did you respond to this? I did fine. So Hmm. now we take the, the survivor of a trauma or a severe stress and we blame them for feeling a certain way. Yeah. So, so we misunderstand that our psychological experiences, our bodily feelings, are emergent properties of actually the neuroregulation of our autonomic nervous system. And that's what polyvagal theory talks about and tells us. It tells us that we have a, a neuroregulation of our bodily organs mm. that follows certain rules. And those rules are really evolution in reverse. So that when we're happy and we're safe and we trust other people, our body can do what it's supposed to do. It it supports its homeostatic processes. But if our body gets threat, cues of threat, it changes. And it can either get very defensive in terms of uh, mobilized fight-flight that we all know about. And, of course, that will interfere with a lot of the biological processes. And in general, people call those stress-related disorders. But there's a kind of like a missing defense system, and this is what polyvagal theory brought into view. Mm. It was missing or, let's say, forgotten. Yeah. It was that the body, uh, vertebrate bodies, can immobilize in defense. They can shut down. Yeah. And we see this in a lot of people who have survived severe traumas. They just 
disappeared. They dissociated. Their body didn't work. Yeah. And now they have to incorporate their own narrative of why their body didn't serve them. Hmm. So in a sense, their nervous system failed them, and now they feel guilty about that, and they feel that they're being blamed. And what polyvagal theory does is it provides a different personal narrative. Hmm. It says your body shut down to save you. It did heroic. Uh, it's a heroic strategy, and it's also potentially lethal. So if you shut down and death appear to be dead, yeah. This is what older, uh, more evolutionarily older vertebrates did. Reptiles yeah. still do it, yeah. and some mammals do it in, in a complicated way. Kind of like but a possum response, kind of like right. A, yeah, but mm. not all mammals can do this seamlessly, mm. or let me say seamlessly without causing damage to their body. Because what they're doing is reducing heart rate, dropping blood pressure. And we're a oxygen-hungry species. Hmm. And if we don't get enough oxygen to our brain, we get brain damage. Yeah. So the nervous system adapts. It may shut down once under a very severe life threat. But then if there's subsequent abuses occurring, the body will adjust and the person will just dissociate. They just won't be there. Yeah. So we think of dissociation as this really marvelous adaptive strategy that our nervous system has. Hmm. But our society even takes people who are dissociative and yells at them, says, yeah. come back. Mm. And of course, going into a dissociative state is a defensive one. So now if you're being yelled at mm. or being encroached, what's the body going to do? It's going to support dissociative strategies. Yeah. So polyvagal theory does turn a lot of our traditional uh, wisdom of how to treat mental health. It changes it and says maybe we should target our interventions at getting the body into states of safety, feeling safe. Yeah. And then what happens? What are the emergent properties that come from feeling safe? Yeah. The emergent properties are this capacity to trust others and to feel safe in proximity with others. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's so much going on within that, right? It's uh, and there's to me the implications for that are immense. Um, for, for kind of first and foremost, um, there's this acknowledgement that um, emotions as they relate to stress don't just happen to you they weren't forced upon you by the event right it wasn't like this caused me to do this it's it's kind of like you're you create them as out of a soup of sensations well, and emotions we, and experience right so. well let's get rid of words like you create okay they, yeah. let's use more like they emerge from the soup sure yeah that's uh, more accurate so <laughs> it, it, the issue is we're so used to blaming others or absorbing the blame yeah. for systems of our for reflexes in our body yeah. so part of life has to be about or part of our education about being a human is to understand what we have control over and what we don't yeah and when we don't have control over things, we need to understand what are the conditions that trigger these mm. events. So if we go into shutting down or go into defensive modes, how can we keep our body from going into those states? How do we need to treat our body? Yeah. Uh, we were discussing, I, I'd actually like to twist this discussion or tilt it slightly okay. into uh, why people are feeling so stressed in our society. Sure. And the issue is because they don't feel safe. Yeah. And 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 the, in fact, that most people don't even know how to define safety. They think it's about um, not having people beat you up or hold guns up or rob you, or having enough resources, meaning enough money, enough housing. Mm. Uh, we define safety in terms of 
reduction or removal of threat. Hmm. But our nervous system needs something in addition to the removal of threat. Is that is and that social engagement? It is social engagement. It's our our in a sense our biological imperative. What our species needs to survive is to cooperate with others of our species. We need others to co-regulate. So cooperation, co-regulation is the theme of what it is to be a human. Hmm. And when you have people who feel uh, stressed out, there's an underlying theme that is occurring in these people's lives. They're having difficulty feeling safe with other people. Yeah. And, and in part, their system, their body is telling them uh, the truth. They're under demands in which uh, every day and almost every hour of the day, they're being evaluated. So we can take this metaphor of evaluation, which is common whether you're an academic or you're working in industry. Yeah. You're being evaluated all the time. But the metaphor is that means your body is in a state of chronic defense. Yeah. And what that means is that your autonomic nervous system is not supporting uh, homeostatic bodily processes. It's not supporting social engagement, caring and trusting others. It's supporting being defensive. Can, can I ask a question at this point? What's that, how long do you think this state has been going on? Because uh, obviously you say modern industry and modern work is that way. Is it like pre-industrial? Is it a grand, At what point did we start kind of leaving this safety of the tribe and starting to experience this type of stress? I think we've always left the safety of the tribe, but we had the tribe to go back to for safety. Mm. So there's a kind of a misunderstanding. Um, uh, it's not like the Rousseauian uh, ideal, ideal world. Yeah. That's ne never been. But mammals evolved to detect in others of their species whether they were safe to come close to, mm. to come safe to come close to another one of their species. They could trust and they could relax. Yeah. And what we're having is fewer opportunities to trust and relax. And part of that is due to, of course, uh, social media is not a warm, cuddly bit. No. Cable TV is not. So we're, we're really being bombarded with cues of disruption, mm -hmm. cues that don't make us feel safe. And what that does is it shifts our nervous system to be defensive. And then we start feeding this beast and we become more uh, protective of our own resources, mm -hmm. less generous to others, less uh, benevolent. Yeah. And we cannot even have opportunities to be compassionate. So we, we start uh, pontificating or, or basically pragmatically telling people how they should live their lives. Judging. By <laughs> judging them mm -hmm. without witnessing them. So we, we have thrown away this wonderful capacity of being a human, and that is to listen and to witness another person as an act of compassion, as an act of co-regulation. Hmm. So is this this, this system, um, you, you mentioned that you see it in mammals. How well conserved is it? Because I have a very relaxed-looking cat sleeping behind me right now, and, but she's capable of extraordinary shifts between friendly, frantic, and murderous behavior. So it, does this go all the way down to kind of cats, or at what oh, point does it kind of come in? Yeah. It goes back to the primitive mammals, who are, which are now extinct. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, the important, first of all, your cat is laying down behind you because she trusts you. Yeah. So, and, and only me, apparently, she attacks everybody else. But <laughs> right, but, but you're, you're, you're her co-regulator. Your yeah. presence is enough for her to say, I can show my ventral side, I can do this, yeah. I can you know, curl up, I can 
be safe in your presence. Mm. And this is really what all mammals need. They need the opportunity to feel safe in the presence of another. And I generalize now when I make the statement to another appropriate mammal. Mm. So for many people, it may be their dog because they don't feel safe with people. Yeah. And maybe their cat. Yeah. Uh, but you can see there is a reciprocity. The cat with you feels safe enough to be vulnerable. Yeah. And this, this, is this other continuum we need to think about. And that's a continuum of being accessible as a human being versus being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And if we're in a world where we're all vulnerable all the time, we tend not to be accessible. And accessible means we're available to help or co-regulate another one of our species. Gotcha. You know, being, being nice and trusting to another person. Yeah. And I guess that explains the success of things like um, equine therapy, right? Where people have, yeah. they're very withdrawn. They can't interact with other human beings, but they can go via a horse. They can learn trust and co-regulation with a horse and then work their way back. Absolutely. And there are people who work with dogs, dogs, mm. because in polyvagal terminology, the magic word is neuroception. And that is the nervous system's ability to detect risk in the environment or in another person. So the neuroception of an individual with a horse or with their dog, therapy dog, is that the dog and the horse or the horse understands them, hmm. understands their response to their physiological state. Dogs are remarkable. I don't know too much about horses, but dogs are remarkable because they'll detect the intonation of your voice hmm. very acutely and even your facial expression. Yeah. So if you become dissociative, they'll pick up on that. Yeah. If your voice becomes a higher pitched, less melodic, meaning mm. that you're anxious, the mm. dog pick up on it. Mm. If your voice goes into a lower pitch and becomes monotonic, they will think that you don't like them anymore and they'll go down to the floor. Yeah. They'll think that you're yelling at them. Yeah. So this is really interesting from my point of view because um, – so one of the things that I do is teach and study stress management in two kind of contexts, right? One is exploratory workshops and retreats with academic and corporate groups and first responders, and the other one's through martial arts instruction. And obviously the methodologies are a bit different, um, but what we're really looking to do is the same thing. It's to build some sort of awareness of your own state, and then once you have more awareness and control of your own stress state, then you can help co-regulate other people. So from a, a law enforcement officer's perspective, for example, if they're um, activated, if they're kind of in a sympathetic nervous system state and their voice is high and loud and their trap muscles are tense and their shoulders are up near the ears, they can't possibly get another person to calm down or follow instructions because it will just make, especially if they're already, um, you know, in some way distressed. So we, we teach you have to relax your own body posture and facial expressions first and then you can work with the person instead of trying to fight them kind of in this way in, in a control aspect and the same thing is true in the corporate you know media if you go into a meeting and you look stressed nobody will trust you or relax with you, you know, kind of that way so it's self-regulation is necessary co-regulation it's, it's mm. the same thing with teachers even in elementary schools yeah if the child if the teacher is tense the child children will tend to have more tantrums or yeah. behavioral outbursts so are we really are in this quest for safety but it really means it's a quest to be able to feel safe enough in the presence of another. Right. And we're sending cues. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I think uh, people uh, don't really have enough understanding of the impact of their own bodily state on others. Mm. And I think what you're doing is really saying 
as as the exercise, whether it's martial arts or breathing practices. Yeah. Let's see how you feel when you shift physiological states. Yeah. And how do people respond to you? Uh, in my workshops, I do some simple breathing exercises yeah. and uh, of increasing duration of inhalation versus yeah. exhalation and reverse it because it's during the slow exhalation that the vagal effects start to calm you down. Yeah. So you can actually see this happening. And when you're doing the breathing, your perspective of other people changes. Yeah. So when you do this longer inhalation, shorter exhalation, you get more tension and more mobilization. Yeah. But you also see other people as being more evaluative. Hmm. And when you shift the breathing to slower exhalation, you see warmth. And you, so people have said to me, when they're doing the long inhalation, short exhalation, they felt that the other person, they had done something wrong. They were breathing wrong. They thought the person was evaluating that. Hmm. But when they shifted the breathing to slower exhalations, they said, oh, what an attractive person. I like to get to know that person. And in a way, that's probably what you're doing in your workshops. So you're yeah. getting people to shift their physiological state and see those emergent properties that come with those shifts. Hmm. That's polyvagal theory. That's what polyvagal theory's teaching would, uh, would explain it. That's that's fascinating. I mean, the, the actual um, the form of martial art that we teach is a it's an old Slavic one, old Russian one called Sistema, and and the core principles are breathing, structure, um, movement, and relaxation. And essentially, what we do is we start with the control of breathing during interactions, and exactly what you describe. You we do square breathing. We stretch the inhale or stretch the exhale, and look at the effect on your own body and your own psyche. And then we see if we can affect other people through entrainment. Like if you breathe a certain way, even while you're wrestling with somebody or trying to control them, you can actually calm them down while you're breathing through them perceiving your state, right? Which is fascinating. And then structurally, we work to try and keep the body relaxed and kind of hanging off the bones. And this has an effect of entraining other people to your relaxation. But the one that really um, interests me in particular with regard to polyvagal theory is this idea of mobilization. Because in Sistema, we say that, you know, as soon as you stand still, if you're under a threat and you kind of freeze on the spot with your feet and your muscles become tense and rigid and you stop moving, it drives up your perception of a threat, right? So even if you're scared, even if you know on the inside that you're experiencing um, panic, one of the first things we get people to do is start breathing and start moving because even the action of being a little bit in motion, even if you're just shifting from foot to foot, can start to restore a little bit of a feeling of um, of mobilization with the threat that you're feeling, whereas if you're immobilized and threatened, that you start to go more towards the shutdown than you feel like you're yeah. defeated. Because but, but you see, this is totally polyvagal, because the point is that the evolutionary history is that mobilization evolved after immobilization. So the most ancient vertebrates, their only defense system was to reduce metabolic output. They basically shut down. Mm. And then with uh, evolution through the vertebrates, you start getting a spinal sympathetic nervous system. Hmm. And polyvagal theory says that as you put these systems, uh, when they start evolving, the newer ones inhibit the older ones. And this comes from an old concept that was uh, uh, basically uh, I'll use it, proselytized by John Hewlin Jackson, who was a neurologist at the turn of the, of the 19th century, turn of the 20th, yeah, 20th century. Hmm. Uh, and he... Uh, basically said that when you have brain injury or brain damage, the older circuits become disinhibited. Polyvagal theory takes the same metaphor, but it applies it to the autonomic nervous system hmm. and says, as you get challenged, you go down that hierarchy. 
Yeah. And what you're doing in terms of treatment models is moving people upward. Yeah. So is so what you find out with people who have suffered severe trauma and they have shut down, they tend to do high-risk behaviors to keep mobilized hmm. because they can't sit. If they sit still, they move into a shutting down. Yeah. And so the the uh, diagnostic metaphor that I use is to ask people how they how they conceptualize or how they experience stillness. Yeah. Okay, so if you experience stillness as this kind of euphoric state where time expands and you can be creative, uh, or do you view it as falling down into the abyss, in a sense, going to hell and dying? Mm. And a lot of people who have experienced severe traumas with that shutdown uh, ex- response are extremely uh, fearful and in, with great anticipation of going into the abyss, shutting mm. down. Yeah. So, so they equate one with the other, and it's and the treatment is a process of getting them first um, to be, understand what's happening, and then secondly, secondarily, to become comfortable again with the idea of being able to be yeah, still but, without but, without panicking. But, but, but you're giving them an understanding that if they move, they can't shut down. Yeah, and that's part of the educational process. But there's a stage beyond moving there's a stage of social engagement and trust with another person yeah and that may take time to come on board yeah because with most people with trauma histories and i'm saying this that there are a lot of people in our society with trauma histories far more than people have acknowledged and many of those traumatic uh situations or events are literally transgenerational mm-hmm. in the united states we are a society of immigrants we're a society of traumatized immigrants Hmm. which means that our grandparents or great-grandparents and sometimes even parents experienced horrible situations and it impacted on how we were raised it it impacted on our own personal narrative yeah so so we don't know always what are the things that really are the triggers in our lives so it's as if all of us are kind of like a our own individual roadmap of trauma and patchwork of kind of like mini traumas and getting to understand ourselves a little better is kind of a necessary path towards development. Uh, I, I think absolutely. But I think more than the patchwork of traumas, it's the patchwork of the narratives that we use to cover those traumas. Mm, yeah, and, and those narratives then become uh actually our roadmap to how we quote succeed so part of the buried question is what is personal success so i've heard from lots of people that who they say oh they're so successful i don't know why they're so troubled yeah and the answer is we have to redefine what success is Hmm. uh success is more of a biological uh imperative than it is a financial one so what is it that this person needs Mm. to feel safe and to trust others Mm. do you feel like those things those imperatives on a biological level have stayed the same regardless of how our technology and our lives has discovered so ultimately from an evolutionary perspective right um our bodies up to a certain age just want us to find mates and reproduce and then look after them but then when you get past kind of that age are we still predisposed to want to be good grandparents and being an extended family and the kind of isolation especially in america there's very few extended families that stay together in urban areas and things is that part of what's making us panicky we're not. Um, we're in dissonance. I think we're panicked because we haven't uh, had opportunities to contemplate stillness. We haven't felt safe enough to sit still. 
Mm. So, I mean, the culture is very well defined about what it is to you need to be motivated, you need to be working all the time. Look at the the millennials. Most of them actually don't even live on their own and they're working very hard, but they don't have relationships, not like the other generations. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't even seem to be that high on their priorities mm. because they haven't, um, I would say, had the opportunities to feel safe in the arms of another. Hmm. So uh, I think, again, go, flipping back to what the word success is, hmm. success is being a successful mammal, successful human, and I really say it's this capacity or to feel safe with another. And if we don't feel safe with another, then we're not successful. So, so is, that what, um, is that what distinguishes us from other mammals in terms of how we relate to stress, or is... Um, what what actually makes how does our humanity distinguish us from say uh, other mammals in the way that we can deal with stress because obviously we have more complex memories of it like a cat can get panicked and then be activated in the sympathetic sense and then it can kind of clean itself and go back to sleep within about five minutes but we seem to hold on to these things a lot well Mm. you see i've been talking to some veterinarians and they talk about cats yeah. as going vagal, but they don't mean it in a more positive vagal regulation. They mean the, the animals drop dead on their in their clinics. They pass uh, out. Of them. Yeah. Mm. They, they die. Mm. Yeah. It's just so much. Uh, and that is a vagal uh, life threat defense response. Okay. So, so uh, we as mammals are always trying to feel safe. I think our society just hasn't put enough emphasis on on that okay coming actually your question is have we evolved to deal with stress differently than your cat yeah i guess that's it. And, and i think we have because we we have big brains we come up with what i call complex narratives hmm. we've buried uh the bodily reactions that we have on a day-to-day basis hmm. we basically tend to say not only do should we ignore them we basically mandate that we shouldn't respond to our bodily feelings. Mm. Why would we sit in a classroom for six hours a day? Right, yeah. I mean, we're basically inhibiting the body urges to do things, and the educational system is a very good reflection of our culture because it says, let's throw away all those opportunities for play, for social interactions, for enjoying school, and let's make sure we spend more time developing cognitive functions. Yeah. But there's a fallacy in that strategy because if they have allowed or facilitate classrooms to have more interaction, more play, yeah. more social reciprocity, mm. they would actually be performing the neural exercises that would promote physiological state regulation yeah. that would enable the kids and adults to sit there longer, process information, be bolder in their thinking, and basically be more productive in the long run. Join us here at NC Sistema the weekend of January 24th to 26th, 2020 for a deep exploration of Sistema principles with senior Sistema instructor Emmanuel Manolakakis. In this next seminar entitled Reconstruction, Emmanuel will guide you in the process of building your awareness, skill, and control under a wide range of combative situations with a view to deepening and consolidating your abilities. This will be Emmanuel's second event at NC Sistema. The third and final event in the series is planned for January 2021. The event will be held at 
Mid-South Fences Club in downtown Durham, North Carolina, and is priced at $255 for the whole weekend if you register before January the 1st. Podcast patrons can save an additional 10% by entering the discount code PATRONS, that's P-A-T-R-O-N-S, all caps, at the checkout stage. Numbers for this seminar are strictly limited, so sign up online today at ncsystema.com slash events. See you there. I feel like there is um there's a growing awareness or some sort of backlash against that pro cognitive let's just get the kids to sit still cut out all physical education classes thing I mean part of the reason I live in Hillsborough North Carolina just north of where I used to live in Chapel Hill and the main reason we live here is because um, both of my kids they're aged two and six and my wife uh, she's she teaches uh, at the school or at Montessori school just around the corner which is very leafy very outside they get a minimum of like you know Two, nearly two hours of outdoor time per day and then the way that they con- they construct their own work they get to choose between different types of work and it's largely through play at an early age and they have freedom to move around the classroom at any time they're not restricted but it seems like more and more parents are becoming aware that of the need for that and that just putting kids you know in rows and expecting them to sit still and then diagnosing them with ADHD if they don't sit still is probably not the way forward do you feel like that's there is a, an awareness or is it still needs to be bigger yeah. I, I don't think the awareness is hit the right places. Okay. So like the colleges of education are still teaching educational strategies from a cognitive and a behavioral level. Mm. All this, but when the teachers graduate and they now have to teach in the schools, the major problem teachers are confronted with are, are linked to behavioral state regulation of the kids. Yeah. And, and they have no toolkit to work with. Yeah. So there's tremendous frustration. So, it's not the training of teachers where the information is now being discussed. Hmm. It's the frustration of teachers trying to deal in the world that they're dumped without the right toolkit. So hmm. there's coming quite a bit of traction. I've been invited. I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago uh, in Indianapolis at a neuroscience and education meeting. Yeah. And it was all about these issues. And that was, you know, it, so I think uh, the teachers, it's more of a grassroots model. Yeah, uh, it's coming from a needs basis. <laughs> a, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the real issue is, of course, uh, the way school systems are set up is that they want kids to be functionally obedient and compliant. Yeah, and and if your behavioral style is to move and be active in your kid, yeah. which kids should move and be active, yeah. you're going to be in direct conflict with the school system. But interestingly, when you graduate and move on into, let's say, college and graduate school, what types of people are the so-called successful ones? The bold ones, the initiators, but the school systems don't really have good a good record in dealing with those types of behavioral strategies. Yeah. Well, plus, I guess you've got the added complexity of not knowing what we're preparing kids for now, right? Or college students for that half the jobs that, you know, in 20 years time will exist might not be jobs we thought of. Or, you know, there's a lot of manual tasks will go away with robotics and AI and things. It's like what? So the creative and bold kind of um, tendencies are the ones we actually need, right? Not the ability to recall information and regurgitate and compare. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think if we think about the tradition of uh, test and recall and study and recall, it's not problem-solving oriented. And we, we haven't really progressed that much in the past few decades. Yeah, gotcha. So if you, what, what interventions should people be made aware of? So if, given that they have an understanding or come to an understanding of how their 
nervous system is really working with regard to stress? What what kinds of things should people be doing in order to try and improve their social engagement capacity or their get out of a shutdown state? Well, the the types of interventions you've been describing that you do are, from my perspective, very polyvagal informed. They're yeah. basically giving people uh, neural exercises of moving through different physiological states, being aware of them, and then seeing what emergent properties come from them. Yeah. I think uh, the powerful ones that it's like we came into this world, many of our physiological state reactions are on a reflexive level, but they left a portal. They <laughs> In our evolution, a portal was left, and this is breathing. Breathing is so powerful because it can actually shift these states and we can experience them and learn from that. So discussions of breathing strategies are very important. There's another portal that that we evolved, and that has to do with the initial uh, evolution or emergence of mammals. Mm. Mammals were very, very small uh, in a world that was dominated by reptiles. And it was through their cooperation that they proliferated and succeeded. Yeah. And one of the things that mammals were able to do was to communicate to others through vocalization of their physiological state. So language is very, very new for mammals. Hmm. But uh, vocalizations are part of the package of being hmm. a mammal. Hmm. And the vocalizations convey the person's internal physiological state because there's common neuroregulation of the vagal regulation of the heart and the regulation of laryngeal and pharyngeal nerves, meaning the intonation of your voice. Yeah. So everyone knows that if a person is in a high, squeaky, tense voice, you shouldn't come go too close to them. It's like when the cat starts to to screech, uh, screech. right? Yeah. Don't go close. And likewise, if the voice is very low and monotonic, it's like a barking dog or a roaring lion, hmm. you know, to get uh, get away from it. Yeah. So this was embedded into our into our DNA. It's part hmm. of who we are. It's part of being a mammal. Hmm. But there's a frequency band in between, and we see this, of course with mothers and how they talk to their babies with the, it's called infant directed speech or motherese mm. it's highly melodic and it calms babies down they weren't taught to calm down it's part of what the nervous system does yeah now fathers aren't as good as as mothers in talking to their babies but they're very good with their pets mm. so fathers will use uh they'll talk to their pets like a baby they'll use a higher voice <laughs> melodic Guilty as charged, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's because there are frequency bands that basically have uh, cues of safety. It's like distilled sense of love or distilled sense of safety and trust. So the modulation of of intonation provides that cue. Well, I developed an intervention, and it's called the Safe and Sound Protocol, and it's distributed by integrated listening systems. Mm. And this is really a uh, computer altering of vocal music that emphasizes the intonation features that trigger in the body a sense of safety and trust. And it goes through, it's a five one hour program, Mm. and it triggers uh, a sense of safety in the physiology. And when I got a patent on the technology, the patent also includes the use of this technology as an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator. So wow. it says through an auditory portal, you're calming the body down. Mm. Now that's, when I developed it, I thought, oh, this is just going to be a wonderful portal. And it was working real well with 
children who had autistic spectrum features. It would calm them down. Uh, auditory processing would improve. Mm. Auditory hypersensitivities would decrease. But then people start using it with adults who had severe trauma histories. Mm. And this was really kind of a mixed outcome because for many it was, oh, wow. This is what it's like to calm down. They were feeling their body. They were becoming embodied. Hmm. But for others, they would listen to the first hour, their body would calm down. And then the next day, their body would go like this, would tense up. Hmm. And it took me a little bit to realize what was going on. Hmm. Their body was getting cues of safety, but cues of safety were associated in their memories, in their brain, in their embodiedness as cues of uh, abuse. Ah, so they suffered childhood abuse, and so that, as soon as they got like a cue of, oh, mom, dad came home or something, there's an impending doom kind of feel that goes along with it. Right, or yeah. one might say, been fooled once, not going to be fooled again. Yeah. So the body goes into this defensive one, because as long as they're in states of defense, they can't be hurt. So the interventions work well when it is being used with an informed, a trauma-informed therapist mm. who works with the client and allows them to observe those physiological responses, uh, titrates it, uh, uses the intervention in a much slower uh, progression, yeah. and allows the person to resolve those feelings mm. and maybe go, rather than one hour a day for five days, maybe a half hour every other day. Right. Uh, or maybe even slower until the person understands what's going on in their body yeah. and respects the reaction and then you, it's very much like what you're doing with your other exercises. Yeah. You start to become respectful of your own body's reactions. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. So there's, so there's breathing as an intervention. There's the perception, there's sound and the, the recognition of the way that you make sound or perceive sound that has an effect on people in terms of their neuroception as well. And um, there's one more that I'd like to ask you about a little bit. It seems that, um, well, like breathing has been studied fairly extensively. The things like pranayama and yogic breathing stuff have been studied by psychologists fairly extensively. And it's been kind of shown how it can pull you into different autonomic states and things like that. Um, there's one aspect that we use in Sistema and that we use in our interventions, which is active control of uh, perception and control of physical tension, like tonus and muscles. And this seems like it's pretty poorly studied. There's a friend and a colleague of mine, Michael Chin, who used to be at Harvard. Um, and now he's at, I think, Vanderbilt School of Medicine. And he just published two articles in, I think it was in Frontiers in Psychology, that demonstrate that if you pair breathing, like synchronized breathing with like pandiculation, so like synchronized tension and relaxation in muscles, you can get an even um, higher shift between autonomic states and um, there's some sort of feedback loop that happens there. Is there some basis for that? I'm not sure what the mechanism is for that happening. We know it works, but we're not sure why. <laughs> okay, so when, with breathing, where we were describing it earlier with longer inhalations or longer exhalations, yeah. you're manipulating uh, this newer mammalian vagal circuit sure. which can calm you down. It can inhibit sympathetics. Yeah. When you start doing the muscle tension, you're now triggering the sympathetics. Mm. And now you're requiring a coordination between the breathing or, as you say, the vagal uh, regulation and the sympathetic. You're actually shifting how the nervous system is supporting muscle tension. Mm. So based upon how you're breathing, you're either uh, inhibiting the sympathetics or you're, let's say, augmenting or allowing them to work more efficiently. So you, does it kind of change the context for the tension that you have then? So you're kind of regaining control of 
it's different. Or, uh, let's let's visualize this. So you, yeah. you have something that I call the vagal break. It inhibits your heart rate. It's yeah. this dual mammalian vagus. It calms you down. It kind of sits on top of your sympathetic nervous system. But it's a efficient system that you can just remove it, and you're you have more heart rate, which means you have more metabolic output, which means you can support muscle tension without sympathetic nervous system excitation. Okay. So during the long inhalations, that's what you can do. Hmm. But during the long exhalations, now you're inhibiting hmm. the sympathetic. So now you have to. There's more work of the sympathetic nervous system to support that muscle tension. So you're you're playing with the neural dynamics yeah. of metabolic output. Yeah. And these become complex, I would call them neural exercises. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what the instructors in the, in Russia call it. They say that you, it's like flexing your nervous system like a muscle. You're practicing moving it between states like this way when, you, when you're pairing breathing with tension. Right. Uh, I would totally agree. So it's, it's, you, you have an end product which you need to support the muscle tension. And based upon the way you breathe, you're either supporting it by vagal withdrawal or you're competing with the sympathetics with the vagal inhibition of the of the heart. Wow, that's that's phenomenal. That's a I'll definitely talk to Michael about that one. I'm hoping to get him on the podcast soon as well. So can I ask him. So can I ask um, what was the um what was the motivation for you behind penning, penning polyvagal theory? Were you actively looking for a, a new model that better fit observations, or was there some other less direct kind of route? Into oh, it? I, I think I I needed to understand something that was a paradox to me. I was working in uh, basically doing research on newborn babies for about 20 years at the time. Mm. And there was this notion, I, I had been studying heart rate variability um, since, it's from the 1960s. Mm. And I had always been talking about it as a measure of vagal regulation and something that was very positive. It mm. was health-providing, supportive. And then I start to look at preterm, uh, high-risk preterm babies, and if they had low heart rate variability, their outcomes wasn't very good. Mm. But if they had um, um, low heart rate variability, often they had bradycardias, which means their heart rate slowed, and that's life-threatening. Yeah. And But the mechanism for those bradycardia is also assumed to be vagal. Mm. So now you have this paradox of where the variability or the respiratory shifts in heart rate called respiratory sinus arrhythmia yeah. are vagal but protective, but the bradycardia, which is lowering heart rate, um, is potentially lethal. Mm. How could they both be vagal? Mm. Okay. So that was the vagal paradox, and I sought to try to understand it. Mm. And what I found out, I found out the answer the answer was in the intensive care unit, it was in the preterm uh, neonatal nursery because you could see the system basically evolving in the preterm baby because mm. what you have is really a fetus that's taken out too soon. Mm. And what the anatomy data started to show over the years, it's not my data, mm. was that the myelination of the vagus start to occur at about 28 weeks gestational age, and it's during that last trimester that it gets myelinated. So, when so that's they, like the ins insulation around the nerves that helps right, it to conduct better? Right. Yeah. Mm. And that nerve, when it's the myelinated vagal pathways that give you the rhythmic respiratory influence on heart rate, mm. that is really what most people look at when they look at heart rate variability. Mm. And so what you really had was a non-invasive index of the functional uh, 
effect of that myelinated pathway on the heart. And that's why it was predictive. Hmm. And so you could see the vulnerability just by looking at these oscillations. So I was trying to solve this problem, and I ended up by uh, trying, uh, the metaphor would be I was reading everything, all things vagal that I could find. Yeah. Because it just didn't make sense that the same pathway could be lethal and protective. It just didn't make any sense. And then you found and, the, you realized you found the tip of an iceberg and you started to explore what, what implications that might have for zoology and to, evolution right, and stress right. research. And, yeah. I had to pose the question, mm-hmm. uh, which had been functionally buried. No one really posed the question. But by posing the question, you force an exploration of potential answers. Yeah. And so uh, the answer came out when I started to dig into an area called comparative neuroanatomy, hmm. which really is where you look at different species, you look at their neuroanatomy, and I was looking at the neuroanatomy regulating the autonomic nervous system. Yeah. And what I started to, this area has really uh, evolved because people, uh, since you can't really study evolution, of animals because they're no longer with us. Hmm. But if you look comparatively, you make estimates of what the evolutionary pattern would be like. Yeah. And I started to find out that there was a big transition occurring in the neuroanatomy of the brainstem areas regulating the autonomic nervous system hmm. in the transition from reptiles to mammals. Hmm. Okay. And, and you can think of it as from a solitary organism to a co-regulating organism. Right. And what you have is the second branch of the vagus evolves, which is now myelinated, hmm. and moves, is actually regulated in a part of the brainstem that is associated with the nerves regulating the muscles of the face and head. Hmm. And this is where it becomes remarkable. And this means that in the brainstem, the uh, vagal regulation of the heart is linked to the nerves that regulate intonation of voice. Hmm. But it's also linked to the nerves regulating the middle ear, which enables us to hear human voice and dampen out background sounds, mm. which could be predator sounds. So we can't, if we're not safe, we have difficulty hearing human voice. Mm. If we're not safe, we have difficulty detecting the features of others that we would find as being safe. Mm. And so in a world where we don't feel safe, we, our co-regulation becomes compromised. Yeah. I can see how just in the wider context, that's, again, to your earlier point about not really communicating with each other when we don't feel safe. Literally, when you don't feel safe, you can't even hear people who might be able to help you feel safe. You can't even see their point of view. You can't even see what it might need to come closer. The examples are, so if you're walking down a street in a strange town Hmm. and you hear the footsteps behind you, you are no longer able to hear the words coming from the person talking to you. Hmm. You've changed the transfer function of how your middle ear structures work. You've now tuned them to pick up predator sounds. Hmm. And that gets in the way of detecting human speech. Because human speech, the actual volume of it, the sound pressure level is relatively low. And to hear speech in background noise, we apply certain filters in our ears. Those Hmm. filters dampen the low background noises. Hmm. And examples that people will know is that when they're home alone, they often can hear their house making sounds. Yeah. But when someone else is in the house, they don't hear those low frequency sounds. Hmm. 
This is uh, oh, this is fascinating on so many levels because one of the other things we do with the um, intervention exercises is that we try and get people to redirect attention toward their auditory system, right? Um, and this, I guess, there's whole therapies that are directed towards this, and also eye movement and things like that. But there's a very simple exercise that we do in Systema, which is where you lay flat um, and you listen to your breathing in the same way that you might in meditation or pranayama or something like that, and you focus on that. But then, on purpose, you pay attention to sounds that are very close to you, um, other people breathing in the room, you know, clicking sounds like air conditioning and then on purpose you cast your tune your hearing to sounds further away like traffic in the room outside something like that and in doing that that cognitive shift it seems to calm people down you can literally measure it in the heart rate variability change right that you can as people focus on different things with hearing there's some sort of feedback loop effect that actually calms them down so while i guess threats change the way we hear if we actively try and change what we're listening for we can back regulate the nervous system is it? that that's what the safe and sound protocol is about if we wow. pipe certain sounds in hmm. the body can't reject them hmm. and, and we, we start to feel safe uh, whether we, it's a stealth intervention, right. um, uh, but um, I learned this works. So I was getting in a sense universal effectiveness with children, but is when we start to look at adults with trauma history, mm. that the world became even more interesting. Yeah. So never, never think of an intervention as simply making people feel safe, uh, because feeling safe might be a trigger to be defensive for many people. Yeah. Definitely. So, so how would you like to see polyvagal theory and perhaps the safe and sound protocol um, kind of proliferated and developed? What kind of untapped potential do you feel it still has? Well, okay, so we're learning that uh, the acoustic stimulation can function like a vagal nerve stimulator, and we're doing a clinical study on the effects on uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. And so some of these stress-related uh, studies we're seeing how that improves. So initially it was all about uh, uh, reducing auditory hypersensitivities, impro improving uh, processing of speech and language. But now we're seeing that there are a whole bunch of comorbidities mm -hmm. that can be targeted. So very, very interested in that. Um, I'm, I'm uh, watch, so my strategy is to provide technologies and ideas and to enjoy other people Embedding it <laughs> in what they do. Yeah. yeah, well, it's an interesting issue because polyvagal theory was never meant to be a treatment model. It was meant to inform treatment models. Mm. So, um, so there's this uh, wonderful feeling I get when people take the ideas and use it and become creative with it. So, what I what I am doing is trying to stimulate the uh, application of polyvagal theory in other other treatments and i like to, i would like to talk about those as polyvagal informed yeah as opposed to a polyvagal treatment it's yeah. just with the information polyvagal theory you can shift how any therapeutic uh model or educational model is you could have a polyvagal informed educational model yeah and i'm like i hope some i hope that occurs i'm watching that yeah so so I, I am actually sitting back enjoying the fact that it has traction, people are interested in it, and I'm really amazed at the creativity that people are expressing in how they're using it. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and I'm learning from them. Great. Yeah, so you've kind of planted the seeds and everybody else is harvesting and turning it into different 
delicious treats. So, <laughs> yeah, I, and I would certainly thank you for your, your contributions to what we do. It's, um, I'd certainly say that our um, form, the way that we teach martial arts and the way that we um, in, interpret our stress uh, interventions is very polyvagal formed now. You know, it really is. Yeah. So, well, yeah. he, here's another um, kind of clue. I have always thought of uh, pranayama yoga as basically yoga of the social engagement system. Which is a you know part of what the, the polyvagal theory defines, which is all the striated muscle of the face and head and breathing. Yeah, and that's pranayama yoga, and so it always kind of gave me this sense of confidence that there were insightful, bright people in the past, and I was just mm. uh, developing a more contemporary way of explaining what they already knew. Right. So, so the part of polyvagal theory is it provides a language. Yeah. For what many people have had intuitions sure. for, they they actually understood it but didn't have the language. Yeah, or, or offers validity perhaps to people who are a little bit suspect about ancient Russian or Indian traditions, and then they're like, "Oh well, here's how it works scientifically. We have the anatomy, we have the process, we have the mechanism. Now maybe you should give it a shot." You know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, as opposed to a disbelief in anything that is old. Yeah, uh, and what what we start to see is that. Older systems of treatment, hmm. uh, older systems of understanding the body, were actually systems, models of systems. And more modern conceptualization is very organ-specific and hmm. very weak on on how a system would work, how it would regulate itself. Yeah, I, I would suggest, uh, if people would like an interesting intellectual journey, uh, there's a Nobel Prize speech uh, from 1949 by a physiologist by the name of Walter Hess. It's online. Mm. And he got his Nobel Prize for uh, research on the central regulation of the viscera, basically brain regulation of autonomic function. Yeah. What he says in the opening paragraph, really, of his speech is that we only have one nervous system. We don't have an autonomic one or a peripheral one. Everything is tied to everything else. Yeah. And this has been known for millennia. Mm. And so uh, what I always say is that if I used his words, I would never get a paper published or a grant funded. It would be viewed as too kinky. But, <laughs> uh, but so I, I haven't ri written those words, but you can read his. And he's really saying, you know, when you really, are, when you really get smart, you understand that this is an interactive system where body affects mental processes and mental processes affect the body. So it's a bidirectional uh, pathway. And that this means that we can work on mental health through the body mm. and we work on physical health through, through our mental images as well. Brilliant. I'll, I'll try and dig that out and put that uh, as a link on the show notes so people can enjoy that. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm being mindful of your time, Dr. Borges. Thanks so much for setting this aside. Uh, so what's the best place for people to find you and your work on the web? Well, they can go to my webpage, which is stephenporges.com, mm -hmm. and that will have, as we updated, a schedule of my talks. And there are also a lot of things that people can download, uh -huh. including questionnaires on uh, body awareness and so we will put one up on sensory processes as well great and the, so. the safe and sound protocol is that just for clinicians or is that something that uh, the there... safe and sound protocol there are now over 2,000 uh, therapists who are professionals have been trained in it and people can go to the integrated listening systems webpage to find a provider or they can become trained yeah uh, and then also if there are people involved in tra delivering trauma therapy or listening, 
I've created the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium at Indiana University, and people can send an email to trauma at indiana.edu, and they can receive information about joining the consortium, in which we're learning about the history of, of trauma therapists and what they're doing, and also they will be recruiting some of their clients so that we'll end up with a database of several thousand. I, my expectation is that over a thousand therapists and over 10,000 clients. Wow. So that the narrative of what it is to be traumatized hmm. um, is now documented so people can see that. See that. Wow, that sounds like an amazing resource. <laughs> Great. Well, once again, thank you so much for, uh, for making the time and for your invaluable contributions to, to all things relating to stress and trauma and uh, I very much hope we can uh, chat again at some point further okay, down the well, well thank you Glenn good talking to you and nice to nice to meet you and, and stay healthy in North Carolina absolutely yeah, I plan to <laughs> I'm going to go co-regulate with my cat now so like okay <laughs> thank you very much you're welcome bye bye thanks for listening if you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Systema, please visit us online at www.ncsystema.com. Mm-hmm.